their money in the bonds or stocks that the banks were bringing to market. The banking system in the U.S. evolved over many years, and it grew from unique roots. Edwin Perkins, a financial history professor at the University of Southern California, explains. The absence of a feudal past had its impact on the realm of finance, as well as on other elements of American society. The American financial services sector was never dominated by a small group of extremely wealthy families. One vital tenet of America's colonial heritage was that every citizen with sufficient capital and an inclination toward the performance of financial services should always have a fair and equal chance of entering the market as a supplier of loanable funds. That goes far in explaining why the future United States ended up with an institutional hodgepodge, exemplified by the establishment of not just thousands, but literally tens of thousands of small, locally owned and locally managed financial institutions. Walter Riston, the longtime head of Citicorp, carries the story further. Our banking system was built by the wagon trains going west. Wherever they stopped, Someone hung out a sign reading bank. Somebody else a sign reading saloon. Our banking system grew by accident. And whenever something happens by accident, it becomes a religion. Actually, while America provided fertile soil for sprouting a bumper crop of banks, the banking industry took quite some time to establish itself. Two of the most prominent fathers of early American banks, Robert Morris and Alexander Hamilton, suffered ironic fates. One went to debtor's prison, and the other was slain in a duel. However, neither outcome resulted directly from their banking endeavors. Robert Morris, often called the financier of the American Revolution, was born in Liverpool, England in 1734, and moved to Philadelphia in his early teens. He became one of the wealthiest merchants in his adopted city. He served in the Continental Congress and signed the Declaration of Independence. In 1781, with the Continental government virtually bankrupt, Morris was appointed superintendent of finance. He managed to restore some measure of financial credibility during the crucial final years of the Revolutionary War and during the difficult peace negotiations that followed. Morris strictly controlled expenditures while managing to feed the army. He badgered the states into providing some funds, raised money abroad, and issued notes that carried his personal guarantee. As Morris put it, My personal credit, which, thank heaven, I have preserved throughout all the tempests of the war, has been substituted for that which the country had lost. I am now striving to transfer that credit to the public. Also in 1781, Morris set out to establish the Bank of North America, which could provide another lending source for the hard-strapped Continental Congress. Morris managed to win a charter from the Congress, and in early January 1782, the first chartered bank in the U.S. opened for business in Philadelphia. However, there continued to be great arguments over whether the Congress had the power to grant bank charters. So in April 1782, the Bank of North America went out and won a state charter from the Pennsylvania legislature. The bank's rocky path is described in the International Directory of Company Histories. The Pennsylvania Charter was revoked in 1785 
but the bank managed to stay in operation. It also threatened to move to more hospitable Delaware. After a new legislature was elected, a Pennsylvania charter was granted again in 1786, and the bank prospered while helping finance both government and business. Professor Edwin Perkins notes that in many ways the Bank of North America was a bank ahead of its time. For example, it provided business customers with a convenient check-writing service. But Robert Morris was unable to share in the bank's prosperity. In the 1790s, despite the warnings of friends, including President Washington, Morris speculated extensively in frontier land. When the market collapsed, he was $3 million in the hole. The Bank of North America was one of the first creditors to file suit. In 1798, Morris was committed to debtor's prison, and it was three years before a new bankruptcy law enabled him to negotiate a settlement and win release. Meanwhile, Alexander Hamilton, who had been General Washington's young aide-de-camp and married into the prominent Schuyler family, had begun to practice law in New York. Hamilton was helping to represent the financial interests of the Schuylers and their relations. Hamilton had thought about organizing a New York branch of Morris's Bank of North America, but many New York merchants feared that Philadelphia's home field advantage would favor their rivals. So in 1784, Hamilton led the way in organizing the Bank of New York. Bitter political infighting kept the bank from gaining a charter from the New York legislature. Nevertheless, the bank opened its doors as an unchartered company and managed to operate successfully while waiting for the legislature to grant a charter, which it finally did in 1791. By this time, Hamilton was well into his term as the first Secretary of the Treasury under President Washington. As it happened, 1791 also brought to fruition one of Hamilton's top national objectives, the establishment of a federally chartered Bank of the United States. This early bank is now commonly referred to as the First Bank of the United States. Hamilton's vision was inspired by the Bank of England, which already was a century old. But the U.S. Bank would have many vital differences. A Hamilton biographer, Professor Forrest MacDonald, has boiled down Hamilton's lengthy dissertations. The Bank of England was designed solely as an instrument of public finance. The Bank of the United States, by contrast, should not deal with the public debt. It would be of service to government by providing short-term loans, by facilitating the collection of taxes, and by service as a depository for government funds. But its main function would be to provide a large, stable, but flexible national money supply for the financing of ordinary business. MacDonald hails another example of Hamilton's shrewdness. Hamilton insisted that the bank be operated for the private profit of its stockholders, thus making it in the interest of the stockholders to run it properly. If it were operated as an instrument of public policy, the temptation toward abuse through fiscally unsound practices would, soon or late, prove irresistible to people in government. Historians generally agree that the first bank provided a sound environment for economic expansion, along with profits and increased share value for its stockholders. 
Based in Philadelphia, the First Bank of the United States opened branches in the other major cities. But the bank's charter was for only 20 years. When it came up for renewal in 1811, there was a tie vote in the Senate. Vice President George Clinton, an opponent of President Madison, cast the deciding nay. The bank wound up its affairs in orderly fashion and distributed its surplus to stockholders. Meanwhile, the bank's father, Alexander Hamilton, had long since left government service in early 1795 to, in his words, take a little care of my own affairs, which need my care not a little. Hamilton had returned to lucrative lawyering and private banking in New York. The Bank of New York, which he had helped found, now competed with the bustling New York branch of the Bank of the United States. Before long, another competitor was in the wings. Aaron Burr, a colorful soldier, lawyer, and politician, knew he'd have trouble getting a bank charter through the legislature. So he organized a company designed to provide clean water for a city worried about yellow fever. Into the charter for the so-called Manhattan Company, Burr quietly inserted a clause that also permitted the company to operate a bank. The charter passed, and in 1799, the bank of the Manhattan Company was in business. In due time, the Manhattan Company's water operation, supposedly its primary business, was sold to New York City. Burr's sideways move into banking did not provoke a violent response from banker Hamilton. However, it must have contributed to growing animosity between them, which ended in a fateful duel in 1804.